singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better by liking this video, writing a review on iTunes, leaving a comment on the blog, or simply making a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today, the man with the answers is Tat Starner. Tat is a wearable computing pioneer who coined the term augmented reality. He's also a professor at Georgia Institute of Technology and a technical lead on Google's Glass a self-contained wearable computer. Tad, I'm so excited to have you on my show. Thank you very much. Fantastic. So I know you're very busy, so let's just jump right in. So if you were to introduce yourself um, in a couple of sentences, how would you do that? Well, I'm one of the founders of the field of wearable computing, and I do a lot of research in mobile uh, ACI. Uh, in particular, I'm a professor at the uh, Georgia Institute of Technology, I'm also on the technical leads and managers on Google's Glass. Um, I've been doing wearable computing uh, part of my daily life for the past 20 years. Um, it's been an everyday part of my daily life since 1993, and to my knowledge, it's the longest experience out there. That's absolutely amazing. Perhaps you can share with us the story about how you coined the term augmented reality? Well... So I was a uh, undergraduate um, and was very interested in working in uh, in the field. I had seen, you know, some science fiction movies about having graphics and text overlay your visual field, and so I looked into this. And the term that was used at the time was artificial reality. Mayan Kruger had this great book called Artificial Reality Two. Unfortunately, the term had been sort of uh, uh, purloined by Timothy Leary and uh, Jaron Lanier to, and when they were starting to talk about VR and, and, um, uh, if you actually looked, if you actually searched on the term, you'd end up ta- seeing about LSD drug trips. Um, <laughs> so what I needed to do is find a new term that when I put in for a fellowship to actually work in the field with, uh, uh, the Department of Defense, uh, <laughs> it wouldn't come up with, uh, something that they might react poorly to. So I thought about it for a while and came up with a term augmented reality because, you know, that seemed to be close and really got the, the right feeling to what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to augment uh, what you were seeing in the real world. Fortunately, there are other people out there doing the same, uh, had the same idea. I think, um, Tom Claudel and David Mizell at Boeing working on using augmented reality to help particular wiring harnesses uh, for Boeing aircraft. And they started publishing it, uh, their stuff about 92, I think they started talking about it, but uh, apparently they uh, were also using the term um, about the same time I was. And that what really got the term solid was when Steve Finer started using it to uh, describe his work um, in 93 and 92 when they were doing work, uh, academic publications on it. I see. And... Just for for the sake of our conversation, perhaps you can tell us the exact definition. What do you mean when you say augmented reality? For me, augmented reality was just meant having computer information uh, with you at the right time and place. For me, you know, having uh, a text that says, you know, you are in Union Square in San Francisco, or having uh, something that says. Uh, uh, this is the um, uh, TSRB building at Georgia Tech. These things are examples of augmented reality, and that, that's loosely coupled. 
I did not necessarily mean to be precise registration at the time. However, in the field now, augmented reality, as in academic terms, often means the registered version. Um, for me, though, you know, having your spot on a map uh, on the display is augmented reality. Having uh, a list of the restaurants that are nearby to you is augmented reality. Basically, having stuff that's with you in a mobile environment, such that you can actually walk around and, uh, in a free, uh, free manner have the information with you, that to me is augmented reality. Mm -hmm. uh, let me try and see if we can differentiate the concept of augmented reality with another kind of computing that you've been associated with from the very early days of it, which is wearable computing. Mm -hmm. So what is wearable computing and how is it different from augmented reality? Well, wearable computing was, is basically anything where you have a computing on the body and a system designed to be used while you're doing other things. Um, in my definition, an MP3 player is a pretty good example of uh, a, a wearable computer because you can use it while you're walking on the street or, do, or doing some other task. It's on your body and it's designed to be a secondary interface, something you're using while you're doing other things. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one of the interesting things about wearable computing. Uh, in the early days, people were looking at for um, uh, for maintenance, inspection, repair, that sort of stuff. But one of my big contributions to the field is that I started to systematically uh, investigate and articulate why you want to have wearable computers in your daily life. And that's one of the reasons why I really pushed to found the field um, with uh, my friends at Carnegie Mellon and Georgia Tech at the time, is that I thought that there was going to be this convergence of technology on the body. Um, you know, Nicholas Negroponte used to talk about how the PC was going to have this convergence of everything in your home. For example, he said, eventually your PC is going to be your VCR, your telephone, your fax machine. It's going to be your email. It's going to be your video editing. And he was right. And this was in the uh, early 90s. And I was saying, well, look, we have the same sort of convergence on the body. This thing is going to become your music player. It's going to become your camcorder. It's going to become your web browser, even though the web was just starting back then. It's going to basically do everything um, uh, the normal consumer, mobile consumer electronics is going to do. Problem is, back then, nobody was really um, wearing a computer as part of their daily life. Um, so I struggled to make a system in 1990 and, and failed. It was much too hard. Um, tied with a PRSA Model 100, tried with a SunSpark station. But by 1993, I actually had a system that uh, could be used every day, and I put one on, and I have been wearing it pretty much continuously since. So, uh, and that's the longest experience that I, I know of out there. Um, but what was great is that uh, I got a lot of other students involved. So people like Brad Rose and Lenny Foner and uh, Rich Duvall. And um, you know, so we founded this thing called the Wearable Computing Project um, and about, you know, about 1995. And uh, Steve Mann actually uh, joined it, uh, started wearing a machine uh, continuously starting about 1995 as well. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there, we had uh, uh, enough people to actually show how you'd actually use these devices as a group. So is there some overlap between wearable computing and augmented reality? Let's take, for example, Google Glass. Mm -hmm. Is that wearable computing or is it augmented reality? Well, I think it's both. Um, it's certainly a wearable computer, 
in that it's something you wear on your, your body and it's off and you use it while doing other things. Um, it's augmented reality in that, you know, you can, uh, see your spot on a map and you can get turn by turn directions from a first person viewpoint, right? That's pretty, that's pretty compelling stuff. Um, you know, as you turn your head, it actually shows the, it changes the map to see where you're, where you're going. Um, it also can give you, inf uh, information, uh, based on, uh, your location. Uh, so, you know, to me, it's, it's both. And now, um, you know, a few weeks ago, I interviewed, uh, Ori Inbar, uh, and he said that as far as he knows, he wouldn't really call Google Glass augmented reality at mm -hmm. this point because it doesn't have, in his opinion, the overlay mm -hmm. over the reality. In other words, you have to sort of take your gaze off the reality in front of you and lift it up mm -hmm. to focus on the screen of Google Glass. Mm -hmm. So in the moment that you're looking at Glass, you're not looking at anything else and vice versa. So there's not that overlay. Well, that's not quite true. So if I do this, right, I have the time and I can actually see through it to your face. Right, it's a transparent display. Uh -huh. So if you're talking about whether or not you can see both the screen and the real world at the same time, well, you can. Um, so by that definition, it certainly is augmented reality. Mm -hmm. um, if you're talking about overlay, no, you're not doing overlay with it. You're not doing precise registered... I shouldn't say that. You are doing overlay with it. You're not doing precisely registered graphics. Uh -huh. Right. Um, now, if you're talking about something that tracks your movement and how, and how, you're, uh, uh, how you're turning your head, well, it does do that because you're doing turn-by-turn -turn directions as you walk down the street in the city, and it actually rearranges its perspective depending on where you are. So, you know, for me, augmented reality is a spectrum, um, and uh, there's uh, it really has to do with the, the amount of registration you have um, uh, as to, you know, how much um, uh, 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 people generally think about it. For me, though, I think anything with this sort of overlay, uh, anything that actually provides this information while you're on the go, that, to me, really does count as augmented reality. Mm -hmm. Now, before we jump into some more questions about Google Glass, I want to sort of um, uh, roll back the tape of time and, mm -hmm. and go early in your days when you actually got first to be interested in wearable computing, in augmented reality, and ask you why. Why? And how. I mean, in uh, the 1980s, that was very fringe, kind of very beyond geeky, I would say. It was absolutely unique. How in the world did you get to do this? Well, what happened was I was a student at MIT and I was paying $20,000 a year uh, for my education. At that time, that was a rather large sum of money. And I found that I could go to class and by the time next month rolled around, I didn't really remember anything from class. So I tried to take good notes and I found that either I could concentrate well and take good notes, but never I, but then I'd never get an intuition for what the professor was saying. <laughs> so when I did the other thing, when I just didn't take notes and got an intuition of what the professor was saying and put all my attention there, um, then I could uh, uh, get that intuition, but within two hours, I'd forget it. So I really want a system that I could both uh, attend the lecture, get a good intuition, and get good notes. But the problem was that you know every time I tried to write, it was too slow. I couldn't, I couldn't write fast enough. So I switched to a, 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 de a laptop computer. Um, it was this TRS-80 Model 100 uh, device I had. And it turned out that that was also too slow. Uh, even though I could type very quickly, there's something about it where, uh, I don't know, looking between the computer screen and the blackboard, 
for some reason, I really wasn't getting uh, what I was hoping. So then I said, okay, well, let me try something different. Let me try a heads-up display. So a friend of mine uh, lent me his display that he was working on, and uh, I had a one-hand keyboard, something called a Twiddler, which I have here. And I found that having the display up in a heads-up manner and the uh, I could put the focus display at the same depth as the blackboard mm-hmm. of the professor in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I could, with the with this keyboard, I could type up to 130 words per minute. So suddenly, wow. I, can, I can burst to 130, I sustain about 70. So wow. what was interesting is that now I could take really excellent book quality formatted notes and still get the intuition. And a light bulb went off in my head. And I said, hey, look. This is really compelling. This, this really allows me to become a better student. But I was also doing research at the time. And what I realized is that having this mobile system, something I made for the classroom originally, uh, really allowed me to take better notes in person. If I ran across a, a grad student or a, a professor, I might have 30 seconds in the hallway and they might say something I want to remember, but by the time I got back to someplace I could write it down, I forget it. Uh, for example, I, the, the thing, the first time I used my wearable computer in a co- hallway conversation, it was with a guy by the name of Trevor Darrell. I remember asking him, so how do I actually recover, uh, this data from backup tape? And he said, well, it's pretty easy. Just go to the Sun, you know, 110 and say, uh, type in tar dash xvzf slash dev slash nrst1. And I typed it in real quick and I had it. But previously, you know, you can imagine by the time you get from the hallway back to the computer, you've forgotten that really complex statement. So I suddenly realized that, you know, what I could do is use this in, in my daily communication with people. And suddenly I became a much better researcher. I had the ability to pull up and remember things, uh, uh, from day to day and actually use it in my daily conversation. And, and what really, the first things we did is something called the Remembrance Agent. You can still see this at remem.org. A friend of mine, Brad Rhodes, uh, put it, put this out. And um, it's one of the first pieces of software I wrote for my wearable computer. And what it does, it looks to see what you're typing and then pulls up things that are relevant to the current text. So that means that if I'm talking with you about, say, oh, I don't know, electronic noses, it pulls up a file from the founder of Cyrano, a company that did electronic noses, where I had an extensive discussion with him, and suddenly... It's like I'm a world expert on it, right? Suddenly I have that information in front of me and I can really, uh, recall, I can recall this information very well. And suddenly it's, it's very compelling. It's something I have, have much more knowledge than I did just a second ago. It's not that I'm, it's not that I'm, the computer is providing me something I don't know. It's the computer is reminding me of stuff that I've sort of forgotten, but now just a little bit of hint and all that stuff kind of comes flooding back into my natural memory and then it kind of, you know, reloads, so to speak. And the Remembrance Agent, we actually uh, did this at Georgia Tech. We made it so that um, as you were speaking with somebody, it changed the, the, the voice to text and then just typed it in your, your text buffer. And then that pulled up memories from your past that might be relevant to the conversation. Now, I remember wow. one of the coolest things. So, uh, so for me, all this stuff was about um, three things. Augmented memory, augmented reality, and I, what I used to call intellectual collectives. And um, uh, with the augmented memory stuff, uh, that was the first thing I really found compelling. And yet, you know, we're still not seeing that much of it in the wearable computing community yet. Um, uh, one of my uh, uh, 
the augmented reality was sort of the obvious thing of uh, doing the computer overlay right with it. And so we had some early papers on that. Uh, and that seems to be, you know, have, have gone to be very, um, uh, very much out there now. A lot of people do work in augmented reality. The intellectual collective thing was a little bit more interesting. Um, it's sort of like what social networks do, but it's much more real time. So I'll give you an example. Um, when I give, a, when I go to a panel, uh, I will often have, uh, people remotely helping me out. So I was recently giving, uh, uh testifying part of the National Academies of Science and, uh, had a panel of people in front of me <laughs> and, uh, I brought my lab with me. You know, I, even though I was in California and my lab was in Atlanta, um, I had a little camera on my shoulder and a little microphone. They knew I was going to do this. And what I did is I had my presentation on the screen. Then I also had a screen that showed me, showed people what was on my wearable computer at the same time. And so as I'm going through the presentation, it was a very loose format. Uh, these, uh, these panel members would ask me questions as we went. You know, I would answer it, but also all my grad students would be throwing me, you know, suggested things to say, throwing up URLs, pulling up web pages in my screen so I could actually, you know, see what it was they're talking about. And, you know, allowed me to become much more, uh, an expert than I was, uh, having these, these other people listening in, helping me out. And, um, uh, pretty soon, because I was explicitly showing that to the, the panel, they're trying to ask, they're starting to ask more questions about that, about what my students were typing than <laughs> what was on my, my presentation. Um, and they found the whole process fascinating. Another version of the intellectual collective is I told you about the remembrance agent, right? And, when you have one of these, when you have one of these keyboards and one of these displays, you tend to type everything. You take notes on all your conversations. You take notes on everything you find compelling, just so you have this augmented memory. What happens when you give those notes to somebody else? So three guys, uh, uh, Brad Rose, David Kaplowitz, and myself, um, shared our notes. And what was cool is that suddenly we had these shadow memories of each other. Brad Rose was my uh, roommate, as well as my fellow worker on wearable computing at the time. And so a lot of things you know, were similar between the two of us. However, every once in a while, I'd be talking to somebody and typing in notes, and suddenly this, this memory would come up. And I'd say, oh, I remember that when I... Oh, hold it, that's Brad's memory, not mine. Um, <laughs> and then one day... Um, I was giving, uh, I was uh, talking to British Telecom, I think it was, and they asked the question on, uh, some obscure question on, on power, on uh, self-generating power using wearable computers. And um, I had answered the question, I wrote down a detailed answer, just for the next time somebody asked it. And I was in Brad's lab, um, and I was hiding away, I was actually working my PhD thesis at the time, and, and trying to, to hide from everybody. And I heard Brad give a demo to Hewlett Packard, HP. And <laughs> they asked something about wearable computing power. And Brad says, well, actually, I don't know the answer to that, but hold on a second, Thad does. And he pulls up this paragraph I'd written before and starts reading it to them. Right? Suddenly, Brad is channeling what I had just written, you know, the, the previous week. And I had, I was all ready to get, you know, get up and go introduce myself when I was sitting there with my jaw on the floor and how seamlessly Brad could integrate this, I mean, he didn't actually just read the paragraph. He actually talked about it as if it was his own, right? If it was his own memory, his own, his own authorship. He was able to, um, 
incorporate that information so well because we had, you know, because we worked together so closely, he could integrate those memories so well that he really could own that, that, that information. And I found that very compelling. It's, it's, it's the first time you actually got, the first time for me, we actually got the system, uh, so that, you know, all these memories are kind of seamlessly shared across people and it was passive, right? It wasn't something you actually did, it was passive. And that was so exciting to me. That, that's absolutely amazing. Uh, let me ask you this though. So basically, uh, one of the, the things that this allows you is to multitask, take notes, pay attention, listen to the professor, um, get tips or notes or references from your students all at the same time. Mm. Do you not get confused from multiple inputs like this? Yeah, and so how can you process all of them at once? So I'm actually very bad at multitasking. <laughs> it might seem ironic, but I really am. You can test me. It's, it's true. Um, what happens is if you actually do stuff where it's different subjects, like if I was trying to read my email right now while talking to you, I would sound like an idiot. Um, you just really can't keep those two separate things going on at the same time. However, when you actually have something where uh, it's the same subject, like where you are taking notes um, as somebody is talking and writing on the blackboard, that works just fine. Matter of fact, it actually focuses your attention. Uh, and I found this really compelling. You know, I used to, to, to fall asleep all the time in lecture. <laughs> I, my, I would used to daydream, and that's part of the reason why I couldn't take good notes. Um, but having the wearable computer where I'm taking notes uh, on my heads-up screen um, you know, I'm not paying attention to what I type because I'm touch typing with the keyboard. Um, but it allowed me to really to devote all my attention to what that person was saying. And when I get a cool idea or some, uh, something uh, from based on what somebody was saying, I'd write it down quick so I'd remember it. And then I could go on, get back to what I was um, uh, doing. That's really, you know, that was really compelling for me. As a matter of fact, one of the things that would happen when you get uh, people with these displays and keyboards together is we have these much deeper research conversations. What happens is that is all of us evolve the system for outlining our thoughts, outlining the conversation. We take these careful notes, but we also outline the future conversation. You know, if uh, we were saying something and, and wanted to say, say something in the future, uh, based on what the other person was, the other person's topic at the time, we wouldn't interrupt. We'd actually write down that topic you know, above the current timeline and then get back to it later. So that, that allowed us to explore one topic deeply and then pop back up to the top and explore another topic again. Um, and so those conversations tend to be much more, oh, much deeper, much, uh, 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 much more exploratory. And, you know, you're not constantly bursting out with these new ideas before you forget them because you know they'll always be there. They're always in front of your eyeball. Mm-hmm. Uh that, let me ask you now a few questions about Google Glass. Mm-hmm. Um, let me start like this. What's the most fundamental misrepresentation or confusion about Google Glass that you tend to see a lot and that you really mm-hmm. want to correct? Well, part of it is, is you know, the fact that people don't think you can tell when, you're, when it's on. Well, it's very easy. For example, um, that's it off. Um, it's very clear. You can see it, it's, it's a, a dim. And actually, I can probably show it to the camera here. So that's it off, that's it on, right? It's very clear. Now, also, when, you know, so you can actually see me go through email here, you know, go through SMSs, uh, go through some pictures, that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's, you know, whenever somebody uses it, you can kind of see what they're doing. And that includes things like, you know, okay, Glass, take a picture. 
they can actually see that I took a picture. Um, and so in many senses, um, having a transparent screen allow, uh, sort of gives somebody, gives other people in your environment social cues. And that really allows them to participate in the interaction. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, I think that's a wise thing. Um, uh, so, you know, people's, uh, uh, misunderstandings of how glass looks and how it works. Um, I think, you know, as soon as they see somebody use it like that, they get a much better idea of how it's going to be used and why you would use it. Mm -hmm. If you were to describe, uh, what Google Glass is and what Google Glass does to uh, a totally sort of uh, technology agnostic person, how would you do that? Well, I, I think Larry Page says it ba- said it best. Uh, Google Glass reduces the time between intention and action. Reduces the time between when you first want to do something and when you can actually execute it. For example, career batting average of Mickey Mantle. So in that case, I had the intention of actually doing a, a web search, and I could do it that quickly and get an answer back saying .298. Right? Wow. So between my first thought of I want to know this information and having it from my eyeballs, it's literally seconds. And um, that's what Glass can do that other devices can't. Same thing with, um, you know, as I get, say, uh, uh, SMSs in. You know, this morning you sent me an SMS from the lobby saying you you were there. And so I could, you know, I, I heard Bing, um, and I looked up, it turns on the display, shows me your SMS. And then I could just tap and reply and say, okay, I'll be down in a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And between the getting the, the Bing that tells me there's a notification, the intention of looking at the notification, it's just a set, you know, split second, it's looking up, suddenly I can see what the notification was. You know, I could have ignored it. I could have been busy, but, you know, I chose to look at it and then wanting to reply. All that interaction was literally seconds. Um, and that is something you can't do on any other device right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to go into the specifics of the technical specs of the device. I think uh, those can be found elsewhere. They can be found on, on the web page. Yeah, we have, I think, uh, more important issues to discuss. But uh, if you were to um, grab just one spec that's really amazing and it took really uh, almost a, or perhaps a breakthrough to make it real, w- which one is that in your mind? 45 grams, the weight. Um, I am wearing the equivalent of a Cray XMP supercomputer on my head. <laughs> this is a wearable supercomputer. That is ridiculous, right? The amount of power I have. Uh, on my on my face right now, uh, in such a lightweight thing, is 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 more than the first oh I don't know ten machines I made uh, in wearable computers combined. <laughs> um, at forty five grams. At forty five grams. The thing is, you know, you wear it all day. You put this thing. You know, this one's my glasses, but before I was wearing my glasses and glass on top of it, I still wore it all day because it was so comfortable. It didn't feel like anything. That the, the nose weight is very little, that's balanced well across the ear. Our, our design people have been so good about making this thing comfortable and making it usable and making it so that, you know, you can, you can see the display quickly. But that 45 grams, that is such a breakthrough. Um, I don't know of anything else out there in that sort of, uh, you know, that has this sort of power, um, in that sort of weight. Mm-hmm. Now, what are your favorite apps that you use most often? You know, uh, 
it may seem unexciting, but it's things like SMS and email and the clock, right? I mean, it's the stuff that uh, you do in your daily life. I mean, I get, you know, all my important emails come up here, and, and what I find is that, now this might seem strange, but, you know, I'm, I'm paid to think deeply. I'm paid to actually uh, work on very complicated things. And so I actually will get on my laptop and turn off the network. And I will focus just on the piece of text I'm writing or the code I'm programming, whatever else it is. Because I find that all these interruptions, uh, you know, uh, uh, updates and things on my screen just draw my visual attention away and, and are really annoying. But I'll leave glass on. And it allows me to keep connected without being interrupted. So I'll be sitting there working on, you know, a term of a phrase, something I'm trying to, to, to articulate a particular concept, uh, to the design team. And, uh, I'll hear a bing, knowing that there's a, a, a important email that just came in. Um, but I'll ignore it, right? Until I get the idea done. Cause I can't, you know, that little bing doesn't bother me. And then when I'm ready, I go back and I see what it was. And I go, Oh, oops. My wife is outside waiting for me. I need to go, right? But the thing is, I got down that idea. It didn't interrupt my 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 uh, thoughts. It didn't interrupt my flow. Um, and so for me, having those notifications, having that subtle notification, these what we call ramping interfaces, um, where it just tells you there's something there, and then you can look up, get the information, and then you can read more or reply. You know, at each stage, you are in control of your attention. And that is so much better than what's on laptops and desktops right now, where you have, you know, mail popping up or, or a, a messenger popping up or a, 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 a G plus update or whatever else. For me, having it on the second screen, whereas this is my primary work and this is my contact with the rest of the world, having that dichotomy allows me to do stuff, get up, look at, look to see what I was doing with the outside world, get right back into it. Matter of fact, most of the time, if I get an notification, I'll be sitting there, typing on a laptop or typing on the Twitter, and I don't even have to move my hands. Something comes in, I look up, I see it, I toss it away, I get back to what I'm doing. All that interaction is in two seconds, and I'm back to where I was. Didn't have any physical movement, didn't have to move my cursor on the screen. It's a surprising way to work, believe it or not, at your desktop. Right? Now, of course, when I'm out and about, it's pretty compelling, too. I was, I was talking with one of our uh, uh, folks at Google, and I was arriving at the Google I.O. Con- convention. And I was just got off the train uh, in San Francisco. And um, I was walking towards the conference center. And uh, my fellow Googler sent me a, a, an SMS saying, hey, you know, there's somebody from Slate who wants to talk with you. And I said, I just tapped. You know, I'm walking down the street. I tapped and I responded. I said, sure, I'll be there in about five minutes. I'm, you know, walking up 4th Street now. I said, okay, and they really want to talk about um, uh, SMS. They really want to talk about productivity stuff. And I reply. We have this conversation the whole way as I'm getting to the interview. And by the time I get to the interview, I'm fully briefed on what we needed to do. That's really hard to do any other way. It's really compelling. Um, having this sort of ability to converse with people in micro-interactions while you're doing other things you know, it doesn't, you know, I'm in control of my intention. I'm, I'm walking down the street. I, I can know uh, where I can always keep my focus on the street, focus on what I'm doing. 
and then, you know, get the message and look at it whenever I have a split second. It's like, it's like the dashboard of your car, right? The dashboard of your car is designed so that, you know, you're driving and you know when you got a split second or a few seconds to look down and check your, your oil temperature or your speed or, you know, whatever else you want to look on your dashboard and look back up. Your dashboard is designed for these quick glanceable interactions. That's the same thing uh, Glass does for you. And these, and for me, the SMS and email part of it is really compelling. Having said that, I used to never take pictures. <laughs> I'm one of those people, uh, you saw in some presentations the other day that there's these groups of people who, who, who take pictures all the time because it's, it helps represent themselves. They feel like they need to promote their, their lives online or, and there's people who actually take pictures just for memory, right? Um, you know, take a picture of the whiteboard that you were working on. Um, and then there's the people who don't take pictures. I was a guy who didn't take pictures because I didn't like living through a viewfinder. Having a camera with you all the time and trying to line things up and, and be finicky, you weren't living your life. You were photographing your life. You were mm -hmm. videoing your life. Mm -hmm. And for me, that I didn't want to live that way. And so I didn't carry cameras. However, now because taking a picture is that fast, right? I take pictures all the time. So suddenly I went from, I think in this past year, I have more pictures than I've taken in my entire life. That's saying something. And again, it's because that micro interactions, it's the ability, it's that speed to go from the intention to action. And so now, you know, anytime I think, oh, I might want to remember this, click. Life changing right there. Um, and you know, I can show you this. I literally have thousands and thousands of pictures that would never have taken before. So it seems to me that you very strongly believe that Google Glass is a revolutionary device in a way. In a way, it would be life changing. I think that the the this device, which actually improves your life by allowing you to have these split second interactions with support, is really compelling. I really believe this is a revolutionary device. I think Glass is a revolutionary device in that it offers something nothing else does. And it offers a suite of things. The connection with other people um, through telephony, through SMS, through email. It offers, you know, a memory aid in the form of these these pictures or short little videos, these little 10-second videos it takes. It offers, you know, little reminders on your next calendar appointment or you know, it even suggests places to eat, places to see nearby. You know, these sorts of things are re really change how you interact with the world. And it makes you more free. It, it frees you up in a lot of ways from carrying all this equipment and checking your phone all the time, checking your computer, logging in all the time. It really frees you and it really allows you to become more powerful. You, you keep you, you, you keep in contact, you can keep in contact with, uh, more with so much less effort. Mm -hmm. um, so was, this is one of these situations where pulling the computer closer to your body is actually surprisingly liberating. Mm -hmm. And what do you feel about, or what do you think about, uh, the sort of the pushback that's already happening in a bunch of places? Mm -hmm. Uh, for example, it's been already a few months since, uh, there were, there was a cafe and a whole community in San Francisco that pretty much decided to ban, uh, Google Glass. That was Seattle. But, uh, um, so the, the thing is that I do not believe anybody at that, uh, bar 
uh, Ashy had ever seen glass. They never used it. They never seen it used in person. So there's a lot of people who are reacting to things based on what they think it does versus what versus what it actually does. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things I like doing is you know people have these preconceptions, um, and until they actually interact with somebody who has one or had a demo of it, um, they don't really quite understand what it's capable of and what it's not capable of. And when people see it, interact with it, then it kind of says, oh, well, that's kind of cool. I can see how that works. I can see how I can live with that. I can see how it actually includes others in that interaction. And then it's okay. Let me give you another example, though. Mm-hmm. Um, in the building that we just moved in with my wife probably about a month and a half or two months ago, I was surprised to discover that you're not allowed to take pictures anywhere or mm-hmm. bring a camera anywhere in the common areas. Mm-hmm. That includes the lobby, the gym, the pool, anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I even went to the management office and started a debate on the topic. And I even like sent a message to the board of the directors and all that stuff. But people in this building have already decided a few years ago mm-hmm. that no pictures will be allowed anywhere inside of the common areas of the building. Okay. Or even in the courtyard and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So that's a social contract they decide to make among themselves. Yes. And you're probably honoring that social contract. Right. Yes, I am. So that's the same. So glass doesn't change that at all, right? It's uh, you're probably not taking out your camera phone, taking pictures of the environment. You're probably not doing interviews in the common areas. Would you do? Would you actually do these interviews if you had glass? Would you actually take pictures with glass if you if if you knew that it was uh, not, uh decided to be stopped by the community? No, you probably wouldn't, right? So. That's the whole thing that when you design technology, you want to do is you want to actually make the technology so that it helps people preserve the social contract. When I'm talking to reporters, actually, one of the first things I say is, are you recording me? And <laughs> they'll say, well, no, I would tell you if I was recording you. And I respond, well, that's my point. Right? There's a social contract that as, even as a reporter, right, even though I should have, by all respects, should expect you to be recording this, you're going to tell me first. And frankly, you know, it's the same thing with glass. Okay. Um, now, Ted, I know that uh, you're working on a bunch of other fantastic ideas and projects. Uh, and just to name one is, uh, for example, the, the mobile music touch glove. Can you share a little bit more information about that with us? So one of the things that... Uh, Remember, when I said uh, we uh, founded the wearable computing field to investigate uh, how these devices might be used, both uh, from a social, from a technical and from a social standpoint, we occasionally get surprises. And one of the ones that we discovered is the ability to actually teach complex mechanical tasks passively. Now, this is completely unexpected. So how this works is, suppose I want to learn... Uh, the melody for Amazing Grace. You know, just want to, you know, pick it out on the piano. Well, normally what I do is I pull up the sheet music and, you know, learn to lead the, read the sheet music. And then I practice it again and again, trying to get the muscle memory of that melody. Well, I can actually teach you that melody in 30 minutes while you've been doing this interview. So how this works is we take your mobile phone or pick your favorite mobile device. We download the mini file for Amazing Grace. And again, we're just going to do single note at a time, right-hand melody for now. Um, and we, we put on this fingerless glove. And what it has is little vibrating motors. 
at the uh, uh, right below the knuckles. And as each note is played in, say, your earphones, your Bluetooth headset, it taps the finger that corresponds to that note. And you just put this thing on, and it plays the music over and over again in your, he- in your ear, and you feel the tapping. And you can learn the muscle memory for that song. Now, I'm not saying anything about musicality. I'm just talking about the note sequence. Um, and we've done this. Uh, and so, you know, after you, you, you've done this for 30 minutes, you take off the glove, you put your hand down on the keyboard, and suddenly your hand knows what to do. It's really weird. Um, and so I didn't believe this effect at first. Um, when the student, the uh, master student who was working on it, first showed me the results, I was like, that's too good. This, this, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe this. Okay, let's redo this experiment. We're going to use a lot more subjects. We're going to be very controlled about it, very careful. And it worked better. <laughs> we had, um, uh, 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 I don't know, something like 16 subjects, if I remember. And uh, half of them would just hear, you know, they, they'd be introduced to the song, and they'd put on the glove, and the glove would go through its passive uh, uh, training, passive learning. And uh, half the subject would just hear the notes. The other half the subject would hear the notes and feel them while they're doing a graduate entrance exam. Right? That's unbelievable. So they would be actually distracted. And we actually compared the results of uh, their um, uh, of their scores to make sure that they were the same. Um, and so uh, after 30 minutes, people who just heard the notes were worse than when they started as far as being able to play something back. The ones who actually had, had it f- felt it on their fingers were mostly perfect. I mean, they're not, their timing wasn't the best, but their order sequence of the notes was, for I think the majority of them, correct. And we're looking at these results going, oh my word, this really works. And so we've done a lot of experiments now. Does this work while you're, say, <clears throat> mobile? So we have people doing scavenger hunts while learning how to play piano tunes. Does this work while you're having them do a memory task? The answer is yes, it does. Does this work while you're just watching a video? Right, I gave them Star Trek Insurrection, I think, and you know had them stop the movie and ask them questions about the movie, and it worked then too. So we were surprised to discover that there really is this learning effect with this tapping on my hands. The question is, what else can we do with it? So now we're looking at stenography. We're looking at um, uh, a lot. Uh, stenography is kind of the obvious thing to do next. We're looking at learning how to type Braille. Um, but one of the things that surprised us is that. Um, we had open house one day, and, and a colleague from the Shepherd Spinal Cord Center showed up and said, I want this for my patients. And we were like, what? Well, Debbie, why, why do you want uh, this, this work for your patients? She says, well, I think it's actually going to help them recover sensation in their hands. Debbie, I don't understand. How, how, would, how would this work? Now, this is Dr. Debbie Bacchus at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. It's one of the premier centers for traumatic spinal cord injury and brain injury. And she said, well, I think that, you know, the brain tries to explain signals coming up to it. And if you get these, this tapping on the fingers, I think that my, my uh, uh, patients will actually, what will happen is their brain will recruit more neurons and devote more, more uh, space to it. And I'm hoping that that will also cause increased sensation in the hand. And we're like, okay, we'll try this. And so we did the experiment with uh, 10 partial spinal cord injury patients. And this was a year post-injury. So the reason why that's important is that 
most insurance pay, uh, companies don't pay for any rehabilitation services after a year, mm-hmm. after a major injury, because generally rehab effects taper off. Mm-hmm. And so here are people, um, due to their injury that should not be getting improvement, right? Or very little. And yet we gave them the gloves for eight weeks, um, to learn piano. And, uh, and now these people already have some mobility, some dexterity, it's a partial break. Uh, but after eight weeks, they got significant improvement in the sensation in their hands. So much so that some were buttoning their buttons now. We had one, and that's a big deal. Dressing yourself is a big deal for independence. We had one guy, um, and you can see this on a CNN segment. He came in being, you know, I, I believe he's a lawyer. He was, he types on his keyboard one finger at a time. By the time he finished the eight weeks, he was typing four fingers at a time. Um, and so of course this, this is, a major, a major Life deal for these changing friends. for those people. We had one, our pilot subject came in and said, Hey folks, you know, you're teaching me how to play music. Can, you, can I learn happy birthday? And we said, sure, we'll program that up for you. And so he spent a week and, you know, had this glove teach him happy birthday. And then he paid, played it for his grandson. And that was a big emotional thing, right? And that's one of the great things about using piano learning for rehabilitation. It's not that you're doing some simple repetitive task. It's you're doing, you're learning a new skill set, you know, and something you might want to keep with you for, for, uh, for the rest of your life. And we're giving you a tool that gives you superhuman learning ability for actually picking up new melodies. Mm-hmm. For our eight weeks, they learned a new, a new melody every week, right? How far can we take this? I have no idea. I mean, can we learn to play tennis, golf, that's why basketball, that's, martial arts. That's one of the reasons we're telling people about this. There's so much to do with this. The, the, the idea. That's like a matrix kind of thing. Download almost, almost like one step shorter. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of the exoskeleton training system, right? And, and, you know, the Shepherd Center already does this for walking, but it's active attention. They'll strap you into this big exoskeleton and the thing will actually move you, right? As you actually try to, to do things. But the idea you can do it passively, that we haven't seen in the literature. You know, this idea of passive learning of these mechanical skills. And so what, where are the limits? We don't know. I mean, one of the things that people always ask me is, how long do you remember this? And I said, I don't know. We haven't done that experiment yet. And so, um, the, uh, the lawyer I was telling you about, uh, he came in to do the CNN shoot. They wanted to actually see somebody who actually had used the system. And so I had Rick come into the lab and he was very nice to come in. He's a, he's a busy guy. Um, he was very nice to come in and, uh, they said, well, we'd really like to see Rick play one of the songs. And it was Beethoven's Ode to Joy, right? And I was like, Rick, do you remember? It's been, it's been six months. And we sat him down at piano and D he couldn't really do it. I said, oh, let's try something. We've got 10 minutes before we shoot. It'll take about 10 minutes to set up. Strap on the glove quick. And I just reprogrammed it quick put there and he sat there and by the time uh they were ready he's playing the full beethoven's ode to joy perfectly it's like just a little bit of extra uh, learning again refresh that that stuff he learned six months ago and my jaw's on the floor right it's like wow i didn't expect that um so i mean that's not formal. It's completely anecdotal i have no idea if that would hold up in formal testing but it's really suggestive Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, you know, one of our, when we we're first submitting a paper on this, 
uh, we had a reviewer who said, and I love, it's one of the best reviews I ever got back, I was prepared to hate this paper. Because obviously you guys don't know anything about active rehabilitation, uh, active, uh, active learning with haptics. Um, here's all the references you should know. And you know what? None of them matter. Because you're doing passive stuff. And here's something you haven't done yet. If you have a musician who has repetitive stress injuries, doing that, that learning where you're trying to get that muscle memory is painful. It actually does more damage. If you could actually teach a musician that muscle memory so that now whenever they practice, they're focusing on the music, musicality, not the muscle memory. It could, it could help them reduce the amount of injury they're doing to themselves. Or like, oh, that's a really good application. Maybe we should try that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we've been very excited about, you know, every time we talk about this to people, they come up with their, their own ideas on how to use it. Um, so um, I've been giving lots of talks about that, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll see other people pick up on this research and do something with it. Now, Rick, uh, I mean, uh, Tad, um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, um, I know you have, your time is very valuable, um, but I still have about five or six questions that I want to go through because I think they're important. So I want to, uh, go quickly if we can. Mm. Um, let me go back to Google Glass and augmented reality a little bit more and ask you some more general questions. Like, first of all, have you read the book by Werner Vinge called Rainbow's End? Yes. Werner is actually a member of the wearable computing research mailing list. He has been since 1996. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. That's news to me. So how impactful was that book on the way you were perceiving or working on Google? Well, Vern and I have been talking about this stuff for a long time. As a matter of fact, he came, you know, you remember that Werner was a computer science professor at San Diego State University. And so I've been reading his books for a while. Every time he, you know, when he takes time off from being a professor to write a book, every time he wrote a book, it wanted the Hugo. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> If you look across real time or, or deepness in the sky or any of these things, he talks, he, he talks about this stuff, but you can actually see a clear distinction when he started joining the research list, right? So he would actually see the stuff that's coming up, right? And, uh, was introduced to some people like Lenny Foner, who was a person who wore these computers. Uh, you can actually see Lenny, I believe, uh, thanked in one of his books. Um, and uh, uh, what's wonderful is that uh, Werner kind of came to the lab and gave a talk on, you know, singularity and all that. He's one of the guys who's really uh, established the idea of the singularity. So he's talking about these things, and he's talking about, you know, his science fiction. I'm in, in the audience with my big old private eye screen, right? 1996, right? Mm-hmm. This is when uh, we had just founded the wearable computing project. So there's a few of us around, but I'm still mm-hmm. the one who's really wearing all the time. So I'm in the audience, and you can see him look up at me, and he doesn't get it yet, right? And then we have some time afterwards, and we spend about an hour talking where I'm saying, this is what I'm doing, this is how I'm working with it. And he says, wow, you have about 50% of the functionality I write about in my books. It's like, yes, Werner, do you want to join? <laughs> <laughs> um, so unfortunately, Werner ha- uh, 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 couldn't. He has uh, one, of his, uh, uh, one of his eyes doesn't work well so you can't get the fusing effect you probably can do it with this though mm-hmm. no no i should ask him again anyways um uh but he joined the list and he's been seeing the stuff ever since and so what's great is that whenever we talk about something in research he will take it to the next level in his books and so oftentimes i read his books just to see 
you know, okay, here's this world-renowned science fiction author working with these concepts. Where is he taking it? Mm-hmm. And then I was just with him uh, a few months ago. And when the very most end, one of the things I found compelling was the whole education side of it. I said, Ver, one of the things I found most disturbing as a professor was education and augmented reality. And the thing is, you know, I couldn't actually say why your vision wouldn't work. So how'd you come up with that? What are you thinking? You know, have you, have you expounded upon those ideas? And to my disappointment, Vernon said, well, actually, that's the thing I spent the least amount of time thinking about. Vernon, <laughs> 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 I had this, I had these high hopes that you're going to have these words of wisdom for me about how to do AR and education. And he said, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but now that you mentioned Werner, I wanted to ask you a little bit later, but what do you think of the concept of the technological singularity, which is a term that he coined in a famous yeah. paper in 1993? Yep. So it's interesting that the same time that Werner was writing that paper, I was writing something called The Cyborgs Are Coming, where I was saying, and this was something I read, wrote for Wired Magazine when it was first being founded. Nicholas Negaponte was one of the uh, backers of Wired Magazine. And so I sent this essay to Nicholas and to the editor, and it said, okay, here's the problem with, you know, pen-based systems. Here's the problem with notebook computers, and here is what I've been I've been using. Um, this headset display, this one-hand keyboard. Here's this idea of augmented memory, this idea of augmented reality, this idea of intellectual collectives. Um, oh, why, you know, why can't this happen? Right? Here's how you make these devices. Here's the right companies. Here's the people I've talked to. I don't see why this is not a, a compelling vision for the future. And um, so that's the exact same year that, that Werner was writing the Singularity stuff. And as we're working on it, and as this stuff becomes more and more common, you know, uh, we were we actually got a lot of functionality that you couldn't explain to somebody in 1980. Think about it, we we had with the wearable computing project, we actually had navigation. Right? You could pull up a map on your heads-up display. I remember going to Stanford for the first time downloading the map from their website and walking around and finding my friends at Stanford, who I'd never seen before, right? Um, I remember uh, sending messages back and forth during panel sessions. I remember uh, uh, doing all this, uh, uh, all these activities that you now do on a smartphone and thinking this is fundamentally changing. This will fundamentally change how we live our lives. And then smartphones came out. And you can do a lot of stuff that's in the early demonstrations. If you go back to, to the International Symposium of World Computers, the first uh, convocation in 1997, a lot of those applications are now common on smartphones. And I was thinking, this is really world-changing. Um, and now, if you think about it, if you try to explain to somebody how you use your smartphone in 1980, mm-hmm. They could not conceive of it. The average person in 1980, where cell phones are just coming out, they couldn't conceive the fact that you would never get lost again. Yeah. Right? They couldn't conceive about the fact that you could actually send a picture of something to other people across the planet, that you could actually share a Google Hangout live from your head. Right? This stuff is something that is just inconceivable at that time. It would be very hard to describe, why, what, first of all, what it was, and then number two, why you'd find it so compelling. Why you find sending SMS is so compelling. And that's the definition of singularity, right? It's where, uh, according to what Werner was saying, it's when you just can't, it, it's something so fundamentally changing, you can't predict how it's going to be used. And so to me, we're living in the singularity right now. 
we are living in that transition time, whereas the people in 1980 cannot predict what this technology, you, could, you might be able to describe it to them, but you couldn't predict how it's going to affect the world. Mm -hmm. right? So right now, we are living in that singularity. We're living in the singularity of having these mobile devices that create, that but, allows to be more powerful. But here's a fundamental, um, I think, um, clarification that I want to bring, or perhaps a, a, a response to this. I think Werner has this example of the goldfish or the flatworm. Mm -hmm. So if you explain uh, how a cell phone, say an iPhone, works to somebody from 1980, they would understand it probably. Or do you not think that they would? Do you think that they'd understand a smartphone? Remember, to describe to somebody turn by, okay, let's do the following. Do turn by turn navigation, you know, where it's actually responding to your, your head, your, your movements. Describe that to somebody in 1980. How would you do it? Well, I would tell them, imagine that you have somebody sitting on your shoulder and telling you every step of the way. Go 50 paces forward, mm -hmm. then turn right when you see this, and then turn left when you say th see mm -hmm. this. Wouldn't they understand it? But they would say, well, wouldn't that be annoying? Wouldn't that, you know, how, how are you going to do that? Well, we'd, we'd say a radio walkie-talkie, which was familiar, and imagine mm -hmm. somebody having a camera and being able to see exactly where you are not, and where you're going. You, that's not, but that's not what you, uh, oh, I see, because you're, you're talking about the voice thing. I was thinking about on the, on the screen. Yeah. Uh, I see, I see where we have our differences here mm -hmm. because my, for, in my perception, the singularity is so fundamentally different that as Werner says, just like a Beth, uh, a goldfish or a flatworm is unable to experience Mozart or Beethoven. Mm. I mean, they can feel some kind of vibrations, mm. but they would never get the Ninth Symphony, mm. right? And likewise, the difference between us and those beings that are coming post-singularity or during the singularity mm. would be so big that fundamentally uh, we would be incapable of going to that level of comprehension, right? Well, let me, let me do your analogy with the flatworm and goldfish. I think we're, we're, we're splitting terms here, right? Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm using a, a, a very specific version of the singularity when you Absolutely. talk to uh, yes. uh, Werner or to Ray about it. Yeah. But let me actually go down your path. Um, suppose okay. I'm trying to do the, 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 the higher end, the, the, your, your more <laughs> fanciful thing with flatworm and goldfish. So you're saying they can't experience Mozart, right, or symphonies. Well, why can't they? Do they not have the sensors to, to do it? Well, yeah, they really don't have the right ears to hear it, right? They have no cultural framework to understand it. So with the GPS systems we have now with our phones, where I can actually ask for a coffee shop nearby that serves good coffee, that has high-ranked high coffee, mm -hmm. I don't have, back in 1980, I wouldn't have the ability to perceive that. You know, I couldn't get the GPS signals. Didn't have any way to perceive it. I couldn't get the digital cell phone signals. No way to perceive that. I couldn't, so first of all, I didn't have the sensory apparatus. Now mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. So suppose you did have the sense. Suppose that goldfish was equipped with our ears. Mm -hmm. right? Could understand the cultural implications of it. Okay. So back in 1980, would you understand this idea of people actually online, mobily, actually rating things, giving Zagat reviews for the coffee shop at the corner, right? Fair enough, yeah. I, I, I accept that we wouldn't be able to really get, even if you talk to me from 1985 or 1990 and tell me about Facebook or Twitter, I'll be mm -hmm. like, so what? I don't mm -hmm. get it. 
Twitter, 140 things. You send where and who yeah. cares and why and what's the big deal. Mm. I, so in that sense, I, I do, I do understand what you mean. Mm. Um, now, that, do you have any advice for young people or students who are interested in this sort of emerging field of augmented reality and wearable computing that's really probably really going to take off with new devices like Google Glass? Well, we can hope so. Um, so the big thing is that you really need, if you have some ideas that you're passionate about, get it on your face as soon as you can, right? Get something that you're using, anything, right? Cobble together any way you can because your ideas, your perceptions of what uh, you're going to be using it for and how you're going to use it are probably wrong. Until you actually get uh, something on your uh, in your everyday life, until you actually get to the stage where you can really interact with it and experience it, even the crudest manner, um, you probably really don't understand the problem you're trying to solve. So you got to prototype, you got to iterate, you got to uh, uh, interact with it and really discover what problem you're trying to solve. Um, and that, that's probably the best advice I can give. Mm -hmm. Where can people find more about you and your work? Uh, you can find, uh, well, like most academics, the best way to find out by, by, by my work is to read my papers. And so you can go to uh, scholar.google.com and just type in my name, Thaz Darner. Or if you really want to see, um, say, the history of wearable computing, the history of what we've been doing, just look at my academic CV. It has everything listed there. Um, all the papers going back to the first thing we wrote out of MIT, uh, which was the Cyborgs are Coming paper. Um, and then I think the next one, the next big one, was Effective Computing by Ros Picard, because her first grad student was actually uh, uh, my, my office mate, uh, Jen Healy, was working on wearable computers to sense body signals, physiological signals. A lot of the quantity of self stuff was, you know, kind of, starting around now and then, um, just those ideas. And the last one, I think, was augmented reality through wearable computing. And that was probably the paper, the first version, I think, was 1995, that really um, uh, was the first big uh, community paper we did at the Media Lab between a lot of the cyborgs. And so if you want to find out more about you know, the history, look there. If you want to see the mobile music touch, the papers are out there. If you want to see about our work on... Um, two-way communication with dolphins using wearable computing, the experiments we're doing with marine biologists. We have some posters up on that. Um, so a lot of the, the uh, we also have a cool thing called brain sign, which allow, which it looks at trying to recover um, sign language from the motor cortex using fMRI scans, you know, direct brain sensing of, of uh, sign language. Um, but anyways, all that stuff is up there. It's, it's easy to find it on, on uh, uh, just by searching for the papers. Yeah, I would say that I had almost double the amount of questions to Tats Turner that I was able to ask within this past one hour because he has so amazing, so many amazing sort of cutting edge projects and things that he's worked, working on right now. Okay. But it's, it's very hard to fit it every, everything into one hour. So uh, I would recommend that people follow up on that and, and follow the links and look into his amazing work. But I would also use it as an excuse perhaps at some point later on to ask you again for a follow-up interview. Okay. Now, in, in the meantime, though, the very last question that I always ask of my guests on the mm -hmm. show is, if people were to take a single message from this past one hour with you, what would you like that to be the most important thing that you want to send out there? 
so I think the most important message uh, is what Larry Page was saying. Trying to reduce the time between intention and action. Can you use these devices like Google Glass to make yourself uh, more powerful, more independent, uh, to have a better life um, by reducing your time between your intention to do something and your ability to do it? And look for the technologies that allow you to do that, and it will really, really improve your life. Reduce the time between intention and action. Yeah. I love that message. Tats Turner, thank you so much for being on Singularity. Certainly, thanks for having me.